Well, it's good to be back. I have a few announcements to make, and I will, uh, as you know, Christy and I flew back from Singapore yesterday, uh, 30 hours of travel, got home yesterday evening, and want to thank our new friends in Singapore, uh, Carolyn Lim, Cocteau Yip, uh, Julia and Andy, as well as the Genesis Restaurant, the South Asia Union of Seventh-day Adventists, who let us stay at their facility, and David and Belinda Tang, and then many others that we met while we were there. It was very interesting because before we came, there was a, just a couple of people that were familiar with our ministry, and they were the ones who brought us over. And uh, as the weeks approached for us to arrive, there was one or two individuals who began setting about trying to uh, misrepresent, in fact, not trying, they did misrepresent what we teach over there and tried to stir up opposition to get us uh, uh, blocked. They, taught, they were suggesting things like, we don't believe in the death of Christ, and, and we don't believe in God's justice, and, and these types of things, which is often the, the misrepresentation that occurs. But they had us come anyway, and I, uh, I had uh, instructed our friends over there to, to tell anybody who has any concerns that we are very open, we don't, we don't mind questions or critiques, so invite them out, we'll have a couple of question and answer times, bring all their, their, their most serious objections and most uh, significant quotations, and we'll go through them and, and uh, answer all questions, and when we got there... The uh, the church group, and by and large, was extremely friendly and well, well uh, very receptive. But the, the one or two people that were very, very critical didn't come to any of the meetings. So I specifically had somebody call them and invite them to come that I wanted to meet with them, wanted to talk with them, answer their questions. They, they refused to come. But the others came, and I'm going to tell you, they were not really familiar with our perspective, but a large group of them were completely won over, loved this perspective, it tells them it makes more sense than anything they've ever heard before, and they are extremely enthusiastic now about sharing this message in Asia. They have their own media center over there, and they want materials that they can reproduce and spread through Asia with this message on it. So we need to begin uh, preparing and providing materials for them and in that regard, we as a, as a group, our, our board, would like to do a outreach here in the Chattanooga area, a series of public um, meetings, Healing the Mind type seminar uh, that, that brings forth this message as, as we did there. And so we're going to need some volunteers who'd be willing to work with our group to help organize here in Chattanooga, the venue to, to, uh, and, and so forth, to help get, get this up and going. And we will be in contact with more information here, hopefully in the near future, but we want to do this here in Chattanooga and then have DVD set recorded from this. We also want to start producing written materials that are designed to be reproduced by the media center in kind of like sharing handout type formats that they can start spreading through. And they want to translate these into the various languages, including put this stuff out into China. They also have a broadcast ministry that broadcasts into China and across the Southeast Asia and uh, uh, radio and satellite TV. Then they would like uh, stuff from us that they could do in that regard as well. So we have a real opportunity to begin spreading this uh, message uh, in Asia uh, with, a, with a strong group of supporters there. Also, if you haven't had the opportunity yet, I want to recommend that you go to, to Spectrum Magazine online, which is www.spectrummagazine.org, and um, uh, click on the, uh, the current print version, which is top right-hand corner, which is volume 39, issue 3, the summer, summer 2011 issue, and go to scroll down to page 17. There'll be an article written by Carmen and Jung Lau from the Birmingham Church, and it is about uh, how the, it says, how the larger view of atonement saved us. 
And in there, they talk about their experiences coming from students at Southern back in the 80s, going out to Loma Linda, and the experiences they had there. And then they actually mention us in our class and our experiences here in College Dale and what's been going on. So you might find that article interesting. Let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We thank you so much for friends around the world who love you and love this wonderful message about your character of love. We ask that you will continue to bless those uh, people around this world who are embracing this, this knowledge of you and wanting to share it to lighten the, the world with, with the truth of your character that you can come soon. Bless our study this morning that we can have a clear and, and helpful conversation about who you are. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number nine in our quarterly worship. And the lesson title this week is called Trust Not in Deceptive Words, the Prophets in Worship. And somebody read the memory text for us, Isaiah 44, 7. Isaiah 44, 7. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay, lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. So how many of you have the gift of prophecy? <laughs> can, pro- can prophesy future events? I don't see any hands. How many of you actually, even though you don't have the gift of prophecy, regularly practice prophesying the future anyway? <laughs> you all are laughing, but how many of you do things like, there's no use in applying for that job, I'll never get it? Isn't that a prophecy of the future? Or, I'll be alone forever, I'll, n- I'll never find someone to love me. Being a pet, but it's prophesying the future. Um, I'll I'll never find the right career. I don't know what I'll do with my life. Or my ex husband's going to take the kids. What will I do without them? Or my son's going to get deployed to Iraq. And do we ever prophesy the future? In other words, in our imagination, create future scenarios that are distressing and then begin reacting to those scenarios that do not currently exist in reality with emotional worry, anxiety, tension, sleep disturbance? Do we find that we prophesy in our own minds negative future possibilities even though we don't have the gift of prophecy? We don't need to prophesy ourselves. It's already prophesied in the spirit of prophecy in the Bible. So we have a prophecy on whether I'm going to get that job or not. We have a prophecy on whether that girl will say yes to my uh, invitation, whether my son gets killed in Iraq or not. We have these prophesied. Now, this is, uh, this is the type of thing we do, don't we? We actually look at our lives, we take our fears, and with our fears we create imaginary future scenarios that we have no evidence for, and we begin reacting to those. Um, you know, in the Bible, I'll, if I bow down to the idol, I will die in the, in the furnace. That's how we would tend to see that experience, isn't it? But we don't know the future, and they didn't bow down. If I don't bow down, I'll die in the furnace. And they didn't bow down, and they didn't die in the furnace. How many of us would have predicted that? No. If I pay tithe, I won't have enough money to pay my bills. How many of us look at the future that way? Hmm. So do we, do we try and prophesy? Are we very good at predicting the future? If you're pretty good at this, anybody have the lottery numbers? 
I wouldn't normally play the lottery, but if you actually know them, then it's not gambling anymore. It's an investment if you know what's going to happen. Okay? Okay. How much uh, suffering, worry, and distress would we avoid if we stopped trying to predict the future? Hmm. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. It says, unlike every other religion, the religion of the Bible, both testaments, teaches that salvation is by grace alone. Nothing we do can ever make us good enough to be accepted by God. Our good deeds, however well-intended, however spirit-inspired, can never bridge the gap that sin has caused between God and humanity. If good works could save us, if good works could atone for sin, if good works could pay our debt before God, if good works could reunite fallen humanity with the Creator, then Jesus would never have had to die for us, and the plan of salvation would be something radically different from what it is. Thoughts about that paragraph? I guess first question that came to my mind, what does it mean to be accepted by God? What does it take to be accepted by God? She said, she said, she thought we had to accept him. Why or why doesn't God accept us as we are? I've heard a lot of he does. Anybody want to take the other view? He doesn't. He does, but do we have the courage to let go of the walls that separate us? Well, let me read my question. Let me read my question again. Why doesn't God accept us as we are? He can't accept us like we are because we would be consumed in this. Oh. So if he accepted us as we are, how long would we live in his presence? Does a doctor, as a parent, do you accept, accept if you have remedy, a child with the terminal disease in their terminal condition? Or do you find their terminal condition unacceptable? <laughs> well, I'm trying to work with the quarterly instead of against it. Sometimes I, I work against the quarterly. I'm trying to work with it here, okay? And the quarterly uses the, the word, nothing we can do, nothing we do can ever make us good enough to be accepted by God. So I was trying to work with it and say, okay, what, what, what would keep us from being accepted by God? Uh, and, 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 and is there any hard work we can do that can change our characters and our hearts from self-centeredness to to perfection before God. Can we work hard enough to achieve that? No. Yeah. So, so I'm trying to say, okay, so why are we not accepted? And it seems to me that we're not accepted because we have a condition which is terminal. God will not, not in love say, I accept my child in a terminal condition when I could fix it for him, when I could heal him. That's what I'm trying to get at. So I think as far as us, the, the people, he loves us. And, and, but as a, as a loving parent, do you want to accept your child in a terminal condition when you could fix it? Love, yes. Do something to change the situation when you have the power, yes. Yeah, so, so, so the, 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 the terminal condition of your child is unacceptable. The condition is, but not the child. Well, the child, therefore, re- remains unacceptable in the sense of, of you don't want to just say, okay, I just accept everything the way it is and I won't challenge you to, to make any changes. I have a child that's uh, you know, got a drug addiction. 
um, and I'll just say, I love you, and that's that, that my love for you never changes. Constant love. But I can't accept this self-destruction. I can't just go along with it. I can't say this is okay. I can't say, hey, it's okay with me that you're destroying yourself. It's not okay with me that you're destroying yourself. No. But I love you just as much. But when you take that angle with it, it completely does away with the fact that we tell people, come to God just as you are. He accepts you just as you are. Come as you are in the sinful condition that you're in. Well, does it when you when you have terminal cancer and there's a doctor who has a cure for it? I'm not or, talking about cancer. I'm talking about if you come to God just as you are, it's by coming to God and seeing Him and His love He has for you that He changes your heart, or your heart changes. Do you think there's a? You as you are. What What do you understand the difference between a terminal m- medical problem and, and and a sin problem? Do you think there's a difference? They're both terminal. Okay, the medical problem will just cause inherent in the medical problem itself, if it's unremedied, results in death in the first death. Sin, if unremedied, results in death in the second death. They're analogous directly. Where does death come from if someone has cancer that's unremedied? It doesn't come from the doctor, it comes from the cancer. Where does death come from to the sinner if the heart isn't transformed and remedied? By coming to God, just as we are. Right. Then he changes us. We change by seeing the love and stuff he has for us. And that's when he heals us through our change. Come unto the doctor just as we are. And we accept his remedy. Yes, just as we are. How many patients try to get themselves well before they go to the doctor? A few do. Yeah, a few do. I'm not going to go to the doctor until I don't need him anymore. But generally, when we're sick, we go to the doctor as sick as we are. And that drives us to the doctor because our sickness is so overwhelming. We can't fix it. And we know it. And that's when we go. So I think you're exactly right. He, we go with our sickness. We don't try to fix it first. We go with our sinfulness. We go with our defects of character. We go with our addictions. Yes, ab- absolutely. And he does accept us. He accepts us, the person, but he doesn't accept us in that state. Right. right. So he doesn't accept us in that state. <laughs> it's unacceptable for him to leave us there, but he accept us, accepts us. Same thing. Well, I have patients all the time, and I see them, and some of my patients and I, don't end up staying patient-doctor relationship because I have some patients who come to me and what they want, they don't want remedy. They don't want to get well. They don't want their lives transformed. They want me to give them something that will allow them to continue in a self-destructive course without feeling any consequences for it. So imagine, uh, for instance, a person who has got bad cavities and they're in pain and they go to the dentist. The dentist can fix them. He said, no, I don't, want any, I don't want you to fix my cavities. I want a prescription for narcotics. I want some, I want some heroin, or not some heroin, some, some uh, oxycontin, some oxycodone. I want something, I want pain medicines, but I don't want my cavities fixed. Now, if you're the dentist, you write the prescription because the oxycodone and pain medicines will reduce their pain. It will reduce their suffering. But will it really be beneficial for them to do that? No. So, so what we can't accept is we can't accept an ongoing process of self-destruction when we could do something better. We, I'd love to accept you as my patient. I'd love to provide for you, uh, even if that was my son, my, my son that was in that situation. My love never changes, but I will not provide oxycodones for someone to do that. I won't do it. I think God is the same way. Many of them go to him and say, I want, in fact, I had a, I've had patients. Alcoholic patients with liver disease, and they are smokers with lung disease. They pray to God for a new liver and for new lungs, but they won't stop their self-destructive behavior. They want God's intervention to provide them a miraculous healing so they can continue a self-destructive course. Yes? I think an important point, if you're viewing God in the parallel version of a medical model here, is that 
God never locks the door to the office. Like even if even if we're not willing to work with the physician, he still allows us to come in, sort of thing. He still accepts us as a patient all along. Yes. But it's up to us whether we want to work with him or not. So I would suggest God doesn't accept our sin- sickfulness. He accepts us. He always accepts us into the process of the healing, but he doesn't accept us as we are because he wants to fix and heal us back to his original ideal. Sin has caused to get... Yes? This is the trouble I have with a a lot of the Christian religions today is the feeling that you go and you confess your sin to somebody and they give you something to do, some prayer to say or something, and it's almost like a... uh, pass card. <laughs> I did this, okay, do that, and then you're okay. Right. There isn't really a going to God and a healing. It's kind of allowing, God accepts you just the way you are, so whatever you do is fine, you know, just who, whoever you are is fine. There's no healing in that process. It's just right. placation. Right, exactly. Good, excellent point. So it says in this paragraph, sin has caused a gap in our connection with God. Why can our, not, our works not bridge this gap? So let me ask you this. Where does the gap, there's a gap in our relationship with God. Where does that gap actually exist? Does it exist in man or does it exist in God? In other words, the defect that causes the break in our relationship is not with God. It's with man, right? Then whatever the plan of salvation is designed to do, if the defect which causes the gap is in man, then the application of remedy is going to be applied in man. Okay, So all these other ideas and theology about Christ dying to apply some merit, some benefit, some blood, some appeasement, some propitiation, something to assuage anger, wrath, and God, they're all false. They're distorted. Because God doesn't need any application of any merit, any righteousness, any blood atonement, anything like this application to God. He doesn't need it. What we need, though, is we need application of something that will take a heart and mind that is infected with sinfulness, selfishness, rebellion, and bring us back into unity. So what does it mean to atone for sin? And why can good works not atone for sin? That's the language in the paragraph, atone for sin. What does it mean to atone for sin? And why can good works not atone for sin? Sounds like they're saying good works can pay for your past deeds. They're, they're just saying that good words, in this case, can't pay for your past deeds. Can't, right. Yeah. Okay? So they're approaching it. So if we, if we make this out, if we make a tone for sin out to be a legal payment, where do we just place the, the problem? On God or the law. That's where the problem is. It has to be paid. Rather than a defect in man needing to be healed. Okay? So we just established that the defect isn't in God or the law. The defects in man, so this whole idea of legal penalty paid to the law or to God is a distortion. Is a distortion. So the second paragraph it says, as it stands, yes, as it stands, only the death of Jesus credited to us by faith, only the righteousness of Christ, which he wrought out by his life, which is then given to all who truly accept it, can save the sinner. Sin is so bad, so contrary to the basic principles of God's government, which is based on love and free choice, that nothing less than the death of Christ could solve the problem created by sin. There's a lot of good in this paragraph. There's a lot of good in this paragraph. Particularly the idea that sin caused a problem that leads to death, and only the death of Christ could solve the problem. I like how that's expressed. That's exactly right. It's much different than 
sin caused a legal problem that resulted in the father standing his next execution over his children and the death of Christ was designed to appease the father's wrath. That's a whole different, different scenario. Thus we find Micah, the prophet we're studying today in our lesson, uh, makes it clear that the father doesn't need a sacrifice. We need to have a change in heart. And so Micah 6, 6 through 8, which is uh, part of what we're to read there in the lesson for Sunday, it says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with a calf a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? In other words, if the Lord is a Lord who needs appeasement, if he needs sacrifices, will it do me better to offer him more sacrifices? Should I up the ante even a little further? Here's the prophet. Shall I offer my firstborn for the transgression, for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, how about a human sacrifice? How about the firstborn son of God, the only begotten? Should we offer that son to the father as a sacrifice in order to appease and, and pay for our legal debt? No. Verse 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What he's saying here is that the problem was never with God. He doesn't require a payment or appeasement or blood sacrifice given to him. What is required is that there's a change of heart in you, that your heart, which is selfish and unjust, becomes a just and righteous heart, justly, to act justly, to do righteously, to do right. And to love mercy, to become, a, instead of a, a cruel person, to become a merciful person, and to be humble with your God. It's a change of heart in us. This is what's required of us, that we be changed back into godliness. Thoughts about that? And then for that to be possible, it's not that we can do except to choose to give ourselves completely to God who can make that transformation. Exactly. When you go to the doctor and he has a remedy... You have to trust the doctor and follow the prescription. When you take the medicine, does the medicine do something in you you can't do for yourself? Now, when you take the medicine, it is your job to follow the prescription and take the medicine. Are you now fixing yourself? Healing yourself? Working yourself into a better state? No. You're simply complying with a remedy that does something you can't do for yourself. It's not I that live, but Christ lives in me. It's the work of the Holy Spirit transforming us, but we have to participate. Jesus said metaphorically, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. It's an internalization of the truth that we have to do, but that that does something for us we can't do for ourselves. Yes? I guess the reason we had misunderstood how it works is because in the Old Testament, you had to do the sacrifices a certain way, to have them be acceptable to God. You know, you had to follow the procedures, do things just right. Otherwise, they're not acceptable to God. Yes, and if you understand the, what the Old Testament was trying to teach, it's a metaphor, it's a little theater. It's trying to teach us how healing actually comes. And as we used before, doctors can only heal patients within the laws of health. You can't heal a patient while violating the laws of health. The laws of health don't compromise. They don't bend. They don't change. They're constants. And if you want to get somebody well, you've got to bring them back into harmony with the laws of health. Does that make sense? Okay? And so if we were to act that out in a metaphor, we'd have to be very specific and very precise. And, and if, you, if, you did, if you acted out something that, that, that represented a, a violation of the laws of health, that is not acceptable. We can't accept that. Because it's teaching that you can get well outside the laws of health. The Old Testament sanctuary service is simply symbolically showing how God brings us back into harmony with the law of love, the law which he made the universe run upon. And the reason it was so precise is because it, only in harmony with that law is their life. Okay? Yes? It seems to me that um, what you struggle with is the fact that 
most of Christianity has gotten to the point that they view salvation through a very narrow tube. It's almost like a myopic view. And what I see is that you're trying to at least give it a binocular view. You know, you're trying to widen the field of vision. You're trying to uh, get the, the bigger picture within Christianity. But that text that you just quoted is the most often quoted text for doing good works to be acceptable to God that there is in the Bible. Thank you, Ken. Yes? Going back to the sanctuary example, though, the the offerings were never meant to satisfy God. They were meant to change the life of the person who brought the sacrifice. Thank you very much. Exactly. She says the offerings were never meant to satisfy or appease God. They were meant meant to change the life of the person bringing the offering. Um, Last sentence in Sunday's lesson, it says, uh, in the green, actually the first section in the green, it says, what do you think is more important, correct theology or correct actions? I mean, that's a pretty rhetorical question. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? So, correct theology or correct actions? Having a humble heart, loving mercy, uh, doing good to those while you worship on Sunday? Or should we instead be good Sabbath keepers who want Christ off the cross by sunset so we can keep the Sabbath? Or how about the option C, none of the above, and right relationship is option C? Well, right relationship would be right action, wouldn't it? Because you can't have right relationship if, if you're not acting in that relationship correctly. Think about a marital relationship. You can have relationship, but that can be a hostile, warlike, critical, uh, abusive relationship. That's relationship. But right relationship means righteous relationship, and righteous relationship means that you're acting in love. You can have a couple that act kindly and very um, uh, civilly towards each other, and they are very prim and proper and everything. They are in a, a acting correctly. But it's possible for them not to know the depths of each other's heart and soul so much that they are incredibly in love with each other and have that base relationship. And I think that that base relationship of realizing the fullness of God's love and having that be the, the basis. Of- so maybe you're, you're saying a third option, would, if I could restate it then, would be, uh, correct theology, correct actions, or correct heart. Yes. I like the correct heart best, don't you? That's yeah, I think I, I agree with you. That's that's a good clarification. Alrighty. Um, first sentence of last paragraph. It says, "Those who claim to be children of God but who fail to show justice and mercy to their fellow men are acting out the spirit of Satan, no matter how piously they may may adhere to forms of worship." Did y'all hear that? So as I read that. I had some questions. What is Bible justice? What is Bible justice? Taking care of the orphans and widows. Taking care of the orphans and widows. Healing. Healing. Other thoughts. Now, there's some quotations that make this hard. And, and sometimes people um, who don't appreciate what we teach suggest that we, we, we just select passages we like. And we avoid those that we don't like. So, as I was studying this week, I came across this out of... Uh, the Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 936, written by Ellen White. And here's what she wrote. And I want to read it and then see what you all think and we'll decrypt it. It says, Christ's object was to reconcile the prerogatives of justice and mercy and let each stand separate in its dignity yet united. His mercy was not weakness, but a terrible power to punish sin because it is sin. Yet a power to draw 
to it the love of humanity. Through Christ, justice is enabled to forgive without sacrificing one jot of its exalted holiness. Justice and mercy stood apart in opposition to each other, separate by wide gulf. The Lord, our Redeemer, clothed his divinity with humanity and wrought out in behalf of man a character that was without spot or blemish. He planted his cross midway between heaven and earth and made it the object of attraction which reached both ways, drawing both justice and mercy across the gulf. Justice moved from its exalted throne and with all the armies of heaven approached the cross. There it saw one equal with God bearing the penalty for all injustice and sin. With perfect satisfaction, justice bowed down in reverence of the cross, saying, it is enough. What do you all think? How do you understand it? What's it mean? Do you like it? Yes. One thought I had while you were reading that is that the gulf between justice and mercy is really in the understanding of God's creation. Um, And when we understand justice to be some stern, kind of arbitrary thing over here, and mercy to be some kind and loving thing over here, it's only God coming to earth and revealing what he did that brings those two things together and helps us to see it all along, that justice is righteousness, that it is graciousness, that it is goodness. Did y'all hear that? She said that the gap between justice and mercy is really in the minds of people, not in the heart of God. It's in the minds of those who don't understand God's character, that we perceive a big gap. But in reality, when we see God as he is, his justice and mercy are united as justice is seen to be righteousness and doing what's right. Did I say that? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yes. I was reading a little further in Micah, Micah 7, starting in 18. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Oh, I love that. Did you all hear that? Isn't that great? What's, what's he? This goes right back to then the quotation we read. What is he treading underfoot? Sinners? Sin. What is it? What does a doctor attack and destroy? So back to this quotation that we just read then, it says in here that says his mercy was not weakness, but a terrible power to punish sin because it is sin. Notice why does, why is medical, why is medical mercy the power to punish disease? To a patient ravaged by cancer, the doctor administers a remedy which punishes and destroys cancer, but not the patient. Could the mercy be expressed without, could, could true mercy to a, a patient with a terminal disease be expressed without the power to destroy the disease? Or is it the power that destroys the disease that shows real mercy? You see? Like chemotherapy, though, it's not always a comfortable process. Didn't say it was comfortable. Right. And you may experience side effects of giving those things up, but in the end, it is so well worth it. Thus, the doctor who effectively and totally attacks, punishes, and destroys cancer will draw thousands of patients to him, won't he? If you have a doctor who effectively, uh, 100% of the time, destroys cancer, even if that process is a painful process, if the word gets out, this doctor effectively destroys cancer in all the patients, will thousands be drawn? And thus we read in the paragraph that his mercy is not weakness, but a terrible power to punish sin because it is sin, yet a power to draw to it the love of humanity. So as we see that he is destroying sin in the sinner, trampling iniquities and sin under his feet, not the sinner under his feet, 
then we're drawn to him and we say like David, search me and see the wicked way in me, creating me a clean heart, O God. We want him to find the defects in character because we want them trampled out of our life. Yes, Tim. Well, you think the reaction of the cancer patients would be if he just gathered them all into a big gas chamber instead of trying to heal the cancer? Well, this is, this is exactly right. This is an, uh, one of the questions here. What happens if instead the idea an enemy gets out, this doctor uh, destroys cancer, but somebody doesn't want people to be cured, so he spreads the rumor that this doctor hates cancer so much, this cancer is so, so revulsive and revolting to him that if he finds even one cancerous cell in a person, all of his anger and wrath will be brought down on that person, and he'll torture them and make them pay for that one cancer cell. Okay, this is what's taught about God. He hates, he hates sin. There's no question about it. He will hate sin for all eternity. Christ's, quote, atonement, Christ's blood, which is often said, takes away God's anger and wrath, appeases his anger and wrath. Okay, so he's no longer angry and wrathful. It's a distortion. God, for all eternity future, will be angry and wrathful towards sin, like a doctor is always angry and wrathful towards disease. A doctor never comes to the point and says, you know what? I'm no longer angry and wrathful towards disease. disease is, I'm cool with disease now. No. God is never cool with sin. He's always cool with sinners. Doctors are always cool with patients. They're not cool with the disease. They want to destroy and eradicate the disease. So God will always be wrathful at sin. And that's what he wants to destroy. Um, can, and we mentioned earlier, a doctor can't heal a patient outside the laws of health. God cannot heal sinners outside the laws upon which he built this universe to run, which is the law of love. It requires perfect compliance. Thus, we could say that in health, health, quote, justice requires perfect obedience to the laws of health. To be just in a healthful way requires that we are compliant with the laws of health. So what is the penalty for injustice? Violations of both physical and moral law. What is the penalty? If you violate physical laws, sickness and and death. What is the violation for moral laws? Sickness and death. So, yes, Lisa. I just wanted to say, to complete the picture, that God hates sin because of what it does to us. It destroys us and it separates us from him. Yes. And that's why he wants to destroy it. Not, not for some arbitrary reason, but because it ruins our lives. Thank you. No, excellent. That's exactly right. Um, so, if, in fact, this lawlessness <clears throat> results in suffering and death, how did Christ bear this? Why was justice satisfied with what Christ achieved? Remember, justice was drawn to the cross and was satisfied with what Christ did at the cross. Why was it satisfied? What does the laws of health require in order for the laws of health to be satisfied? If somebody's sick and the laws of health to be satisfied with whatever we do, what, what will it require? It will require that person to be now healthy, right? For the disease to be gone. Well, listen to this. This is Isaiah 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life, developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus, they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Not the payment of Christ, the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength. 
Thus the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ, and God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Christ. God's love has been expressed in his justice no less than his mercy. And what's his justice? What does the law require? A righteous life, a perfect character. And so Christ achieved in his human brain perfection of, of, of uh, human character that we could not achieve for ourselves. And we go back and read that quote. It says in that very quote when, that I read to begin with, it says right in the middle, that Christ wrought out in behalf of man a character that was without spot and blemish. That's why. In other words, he perfectly restored mankind back to what God designed man to be in Adam. He overcame and eradicated that whole desire to act in self-interest. At, the cro- at, at Gethsemane, did Christ experience temptation internal to his own human emotions to act in self-interest? Yes. Did he give in to those? No, he overcame that with, perf- with the exercise of his human neurons to give himself perfectly in love. No one can take my life, I will give it freely. And thus in Christ Jesus, he destroyed him who has the power of death, that is the devil. He destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life. He destroyed the devil's work. Those are, are Hebrews 2.14, 2 Timothy 1.10, and 1 John 4.8. 4, 8 or 4.9. So then you can say that righteousness is the cure for sin. That's right. That's exactly right. I will put my law on their hearts and minds, the new covenant experience. We partake of Christ, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Internalization of what Christ has achieved, that is the remedy that we partake of, that we can't produce, we can't work it out. Okay. Now, that one first par- that first quotation I read out of several, seven by the co- commentary, was it that easy to understand when I first read it? No. So, do you ever wonder why prophets don't always say things clearly? Do you ever wonder about that? Bible prophets often say, this is, uh, I read, I, as I was studying again this week, I found this in three Bible commentary, page 1149. Listen to this and see if it gets, gives us insight into, into and ideas of how we can understand Bible, Bible writers. The psalmist David, in his experience, had many changes of mind. At times, as he obtained views of God's will and ways, he was highly exalted. Then, as he caught sight of the reverse of God's mercy and changeless love, everything seemed to be shrouded in a cloud of darkness. I'll pause right there. So at times he had an experience with God that views his will, and he's highly exalted, but at other times he had a reverse of God's mercy and changeless love. What's a reverse of God's mercy and changeless love? He, he saw things the wrong way, and, and everything seemed to be shrouded in a cloud of darkness. But through the darkness he then obtained... Uh, Views of the attributes of God. Notice how this is all focusing on the attributes or character of God. Sees God, he's uplifted. He sees God in a reverse light. He's in darkness. He sees the attributes of God again. He's delivered. It's all about the truth about God, which gave him confidence and strength in his faith. But when he meditated upon difficulties and dangers of life, they looked so forbidding that he thought himself abandoned by God because of his sin. He viewed his sin in such a strong light that he exclaimed, will the Lord cast me off forever? Will he be favorable no more? But as he wept and prayed, he obtained a clearer view of the character and attributes of God. Notice again, back to seeing God clearly again, being educated by heavenly agencies, and he decided that his ideas of God's justice and severity were exaggerated. Interesting, isn't it? He rejected his impressions as being the result of his weakness, ignorance, and physical infirmities, and as dishonoring to God and the... and with renewed faith, he exclaimed, This is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Sounds like you made that up. 
No, I did not. <laughs> 3 BC, page 1149. You can check it out. And the point is, this is a prophet. Was David, did David have the gift of prophecy? Was he a holy man of God, moved by the Spirit to write the Scriptures? And yet we find that many of his writings were exaggerated in the wrong direction about this justice and severity of God. How many theologians today read Old Testament, particularly Old Testament, New Testament writers, and they take it without thinking, don't understand the, the place and the experience of the writer. Don't allow for the fact that a prophet may write at one point in their earthly journey and later, at a different point, write something of, of a different tenor because of their growth, their maturity in time. That's kind of scary. Why is it scary? Because it thinks, you know, how can you believe the Bible all of it then? Well, it depends on how you understand prophecy. Do you understand prophecy basically as a dictation from God? If you do, you've misunderstood prophecy. The Bible is not. The Bible is not a dictation or a transcript from God. God has not put himself on record as an author in Scripture. He did not write the Bible. God inspires the, the, the human instrumentality and the human ins- with ideas, with concepts, with wisdom, with insight, and the human instrumentality is left free to use their language, their writing skills, their expression to express those concepts and ideas. They're not given dictation from God. And thus, we don't believe in word inspiration. We believe in thought inspiration. That the ideas are inspired, but not the words. Yes. And he is gracious and loving enough to give us the whole story, mm-hmm. not just a proof text so that we can also see that others went through struggles and growth so that we can be encouraged that where we are now, we can grow with him. Now, now with this in mind, I'm going to take you guys and listen very carefully. And you're going to see, I think, a, a, a breakdown in, in thought in the way we process information as, as to these two general approaches, these two theological views, the view we hold in this class and many around the world hold, and the view that stands in, in significant opposition to us. And that is the way we come to be the type of thinkers we are. There is what, what and physicians and healthcare providers are trained to be. We're trained to be evidence-based thinkers. That's why you'll find in our church that uh, the view we hold is supported strongly by the medical practitioners of, of, of our congregation because they've been taught to think not simply on what the thing says, but what is the evidence? Because you may have this symptom, but we can't go on the symptom alone. We have to put that in the context of the larger history. We have to look based on the evidences over time in order to come to the proper diagnoses. We're taught to be evidence-based thinkers, not claims-based thinkers. But there's a group of people who are what I call claims-based or proclamation-based thinkers. The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. There's a claim, there's a proclamation. We don't need evidence. We only need the, the thus saith the Lord, and therefore, if the Lord said, I'm angry and wrathful, and I'll uh, fire all my fiery darts or arrows against you, then God is angry and wrathful, and he'll fire his darts against you. We can find statements like this, these claims in Old Testament Scripture. The evidence-based thinker says, okay, God said it, but what happened after he said it? Okay? And what happened after God said this was, if you look at the various places throughout Scripture, after God threatened his wrath and anger to be poured down upon him, 
Then the hedge of protection was removed and the scorpions and the snakes came into the wilderness and started biting and destroying them. God didn't do it. Uh, the Assyrians came and took them into captivity. God didn't do it. The Babylonians came and took them into captivity. God didn't do it. And over and over again, you'll find through Scripture that before God lets his people go because they're rebelling against him, rebelling against him, rebelling against him, he warns them and eat like a loving parent will even give a threat. If you don't stop, I'm going to spank you before he ultimately lets them go. And we find that if you're an evidence-based thinker, that you see past simply the claims. You also, as an evidence-based thinker, look and understand the context. In Kings, we have a story of Ahab wanting to go to war with Ramoth Gilead, asking Jehoshaphat to assist him in this war. Jehoshaphat asks for a prophet to inquire. The prophet Micaiah comes. Ahab says he didn't like the prophets. Micaiah says to Ahab that uh, the Lord held a council in heaven and asked the spirits, how can we lure Ahab to his death in a war against Ramoth Gilead? One spirit said this and another spirit said that. And finally, one spirit stood up and said, I know, I'll go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of, of Ahab's prophets and we'll lure him to his death. And the Lord said, go and do it. This is a prophecy from Micaiah to King Ahab and Jehoshaphat. You can read it in Kings. Now, do we take that as, as, as a literal? The Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. So, you know, when God will send his spirits to, to cause lies and deceit that in order to lure people to their death. Is that how we understand that? Because that's exactly what it says. Or do we understand? Yes. Well, this uh, statement that you read from uh, 3 BC, that that seems to say to me that this is the basis upon which we should look at the evidence of Scripture. We should start off from the basis of the attributes of God. Yes. As opposed to the actions of God, which can be misinterpreted if we don't keep in mind the attributes of God. And, and yes, he said, if we don't keep in mind the attributes, we might misunderstand the actions. But when we keep inside the attributes, then when we see the actions, then we'll say what's going on in the context that would cause God with these attributes to act in this way. Exactly. Why would a parent who loves their kid ever you know, paddle their bottom? That, that just all by itself, we might see that they're abusing their kid, but the context might actually reveal this is great love and mercy in action. So back to the story of Micaiah. Why did he say these words to King Ahab? Does God, do we take it literal? Does God have his spirits going out and being lying? Does he? Yes or no? No. No. So then why would he say this? Who was he talking to? Who did Ahab worship? Baal. What kind of a God was Baal? A, a loving, gracious God or a God who required appeasement, an angry, wrathful, punitive God? So Ahab, so God in mercy, does God in mercy want Ahab to be killed or is God actually trying to protect Ahab from going to this battle and being killed? So in order to give Ahab a message of warning, how will it have to be constructed for Ahab to actually take it serious and not go to war? It'll have to be constructed as if the powerful God has caused your prophets, because you got a message from your prophets saying, go and you're going to win. So his prophets are telling him he's going to win. He believes these prophets are going to, uh, are already on his side. That's why he's soliciting more help so he can go to this battle. They're not going to win. God wants to warn Ahab that he's going to lose. So how does he do it? He has to somehow incorporate the message that he received from his prophets that he was going to win and show it to be false. Well, how's that going to happen? By attributing, because he believes in an all-powerful God that controls and causes everything, God caused your prophets to lie. You're being lied to. Okay? So this was a message designed for the mindset of Ahab to, to give Ahab a warning that could be effective for him to, to warn him away from this battle. 
That's mercy. Do you see the mercy in action here? Do you see the humbleness of God to meet us where we are? And, and the problem is, if you're not an evidence-based thinker, then you don't recognize this. And so because God said this, then we take it very concretely, God, because God meets us where we are. Some people will need God to say, if you don't brush your teeth, I'm going to spank you. If you don't do this, then I'm going to, I'm going to burn you in hell. If you don't. He meets us in our primitive, closed, darkened minds to do everything in his power to, to turn us away from self-destruction. I think it says incredibly good things about God that he's willing to speak a language in the, uh, that, the, that the party listening needs to hear that's going to be most likely to be effective for their need at that time. The problem is we're not in that place. We're not in that time. We don't have that mindset. We don't have that culture. And we read thousands of years later and we take it very concretely. Wow, God's severe. He's cruel. He's harsh. No, he's not. He's loving, gracious, and merciful. Now, the implications of this passage about David's experiencing changing over time. Think about we were meeting here as a church and our church is, is meeting in the first century A.D., and we're privileged to have the Apostle Peter come to talk with us today. And he tells us that we should not um, have in our potluck afterwards any of the Gentiles join us for our potluck meal. This is the Apostle Peter. We should take him seriously. He's, 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 he's the Apostle, and, the, and he's got the gift of prophecy, and, and he's been with the Lord. We, we shouldn't question that, should we? We shouldn't question people with the prophetic gift, should we? Or should we question when it's outside the... Okay, so when you read the scriptures, when you read Ellen White, should you question? Or you say, well, it must be. You should question everything. It's not in harmony with the principles of God's character. Then you shouldn't do it. And so Paul stood up and posed Peter to his face. Because Peter was wrong. Yes. Ellen White says herself, well, we can see in her writings how she has matured in some of these areas, just like the Bible writers. And she also states that her word should not be used to prove points, say, in board meetings and things. So, I mean, I think we use her totally incorrectly sometimes. Yes, I agree. So, does this mean that we as individuals and as a church and as a body of believers should be growing in our understanding and knowledge of truth with time? Yes. And if we're not growing, what happens if instead we find ourselves supporting 500-year-old theology? One of the criticisms written by an official of our conference in a letter, a formal letter about me and what we teach, is that we deny 500 years of Christian thought. That's put in writing. And what they're saying is, we deny Martin Luther's theology of a penal substitution and appeasement theology. And what that means then is that they are supporting a theological construct that is 500 years old, which was truth for its time. It was incredible movement forward out of the Catholic Dark Ages. But I'm going to tell you straight up, guys, it is not truth for our time. It is not. And we need to be moving forward in the truth. Yes. It it seems to be a favorite pastime of of Christians to refight old battles. And unfortunately, I, I think that's especially true even in the Adventist church. They just love to refight history, you know, this historical battles. And as I see it, you're just trying to get us past that, you know? Yeah, I, 
and, and there's a couple really big points I'm going to get in the lesson. We're really running out, so I'm going to try to move quickly. Um, let's, let's move to Monday's lesson. And in Isaiah, it asks us to read Isaiah 1, 1 through 6. And this is where he saw the vision of heaven. And it says, I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. And the lesson says, asks us to try to imagine what was going on here with him. That, um, let's see, Monday's lesson... Um, third paragraph, yeah. It says, suddenly he sees his own sin and the sins of his people uh, stand out in bold relief against the spotless purity and majesty of the Almighty One. And I just want to point out, why did he see a sin? What, what's going on here? What does it mean? Who is the accuser of the brethren? Satan. Satan. So when we get a true glimpse of God, do we get the idea that he is standing there with a list of our sins to, with, with which to accuse us by? No, he's not standing there with a list of sins to accuse us by. So when we see God approaching Adam and Eve in Eden, they run and hide because they're afraid. And the first thing that comes out of their mind is, I was naked and ashamed, so that's why I hid. And God says, who told you you're naked? You see, the implication is, where are you getting that from? You didn't hear me say it. I'm not accusing you. I'm not pointing out your nakedness. I'm not pointing out your defect. Okay? Yet he was acutely aware of it. Woman called in adultery. Christ says, neither do I condemn you. He's not pointing out our defect. He's not pointing out our sin. My point, when we come into God's presence, he's not standing toward us as an accuser. He's not standing there with that list. The children's story with the angel going around with the recording thing, writing down every little sin that God's keeping track of that you're going to have to face with, is a lie. Okay? He's not standing there as the accuser. However, when, when, when uh, the prophet saw the holiness of God, he had this inadequacy, this feeling of, where's it coming from? Where does sin exist? In the heart and mind of beings. And what happens when we come in the, in the presence of God if we haven't had the new heart, if we haven't had the law restored within, if we haven't been regenerated, then we come into the presence of God, it, he is the source of truth. It exposes what exists in us. We see ourselves for what we are. And we are disgusted with our own selves. We feel inadequate. We feel afraid. God is not pointing it out to us. That's why he veils himself right now in mercy. That's why Christ came veiled in humanity not to destroy those he would otherwise came to save. Okay? He doesn't stand as an accuser. Yes? Uh, Isaiah 1, starting in 24. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares... I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. Yeah, this is a great verse. God's vengeance. When people say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Isaiah one twenty four. Go to Isaiah one twenty four. I will avenge myself by purging away your dross or your infirmities or your sins. His vengeance is to cleanse us because his vengeance is on sin and ultimately on Satan's warfare against God. And the way you take vengeance on your enemy is to turn his troops into your allies. <laughs> okay? So taking and turning sinners into friends of God takes vengeance on sin and Satan in his war. Un- unlike the idea that he's going to take punishment. And what most people say, vengeance is mine, he's going to hurt you, the sinner. No, his vengeance is to purge you from sin. It's a great text, Isaiah 124. Okay, so um, this is the last paragraph then in this lesson. It says, um, think for a moment what our worship services would be like were they to elicit in the worshipers a sense that they have been in the presence of our holy God which in turn makes them deeply aware of their own sinfulness in need of saving grace and cleansing power. Imagine the singing, the liturgy, the prayer, and the preaching work together in a way to lead us each time of faith to repentance and cleansing, the sense that I've been with God. 
question. Of course, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? To have this experience. Um, does our modern church service actually lead to this? What if our modern church service has been hijacked by a false god concept? I don't mean just the, the message. I mean the entire service, the entire liturgy, the entire presentation. Does our modern church service have its roots in the Bible or in paganism? For instance, is the separation of clergy and laity biblical or pagan? Pagan. Pagan. The church, we are a priesthood of believers. There is no hierarchy in the church. We are all the priesthood of believers. That's a pagan concept. What about the New Testament church building? Have you ever heard the church is sacred and holy? We should be reverent when we come in and be quiet. You've never heard this? Yes. Is the church building sacred and holy? No, it's not. It's pagan. The whole church building concept is a pagan idea. It comes out of paganism. The church of the New Testament is what? We are the church. It's a living entity, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Thus, we are the holy receptacle of the Lord, not the building. Now, some people get confused because they look to the Old Testament and find that the Old Testament sanctuary was a holy place. And thus, they translate that into the New Testament building. Big mistake. The Old Testament sanctuary was a theater, an object lesson unto man to teach what? We read the quotes last week. I've got some more quotes in this week if we get time to get to them. The Old Testament sanctuary was an object lesson to teach in a symbolic way where God really wants to dwell, which is where? In our hearts and minds. So the Old Testament holy sanctuary was holy because it was symbolically representing the holy church, the conglomerate place where God dwells by his people, not representing a building made with human, by human hands out of concrete and mortar. That's not what was represented. The old pagan systems had these holy buildings that you would have to go in. Additionally, when you go into church service, compare this to the New Testament church. Uh, in the New Testament church, where would they actually meet for their services? In homes. What do you think the seating arrangement was in these homes? In a circle where we could interact and make connections. What about today when we go to church, pews bolted to the floor, all facing forward, traditionally with pressure of making no eye contact, no talking, no sharing, no fellowshipping, quiet, uh, receiving a lecture from the front without opportunity for discussion and interaction. Is that a Christian concept from the New Testament? Or is that a pagan concept where we don't want fellowship, we want to be indoctrinated? A thoughtless, mindless process. Does it connote, does this type of organization where the platform is elevated with the clergy that is somehow separated and and, and hierarchical uh, above the laity teach a hierarchical God concept with an authoritarian type of 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 a divine being rather than the fellowship that Christ taught, which he said he wanted us to be friends with him. That he who was equal with God did not think equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself all the way to the form of a servant, bringing us into a a brotherhood. And in heaven, when we see the pictures in Revelation, where do the saints sit in heaven? Down on the, here, or we share the throne. We're on thrones with Christ. The, the, The message of the New Testament gospel is that we are elevated, not by our good works, but by God's grace through Christ, that we are elevated to to a position of brotherhood. We are brothers and sisters with Christ. We are part of his body where he dwells through his spirit. 
Who do you think wants to diminish that and, and, and have us in this cow-towing, fearful, uh, abasement kind of idea that we can't even uh, you know, approach God? Yes, so I want to suggest to you, even the entire structure of how we do worship is designed to undermine our intimacy with God, not bring us into loving unity and fellowship. What about the sanctuary, a building which was holy and only the high priest could enter the most holy place, etc.? Yes, it was a symbolic lesson to teach what God's true reality was, was to where he wanted to dwell by his spirit in the hearts and minds of, of his beings. So that was a symbolic lesson to teach the reality of the the true temple and sanctuary, which I actually have a bunch of quotes in the lesson this week. This is out of Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Consequently, you who are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself, the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in... And in him, you too are being built together to be a dwelling place for where God lives by his spirit. Or 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by man, chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are built together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to God. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 and 16 and 17. For we are God's fellow workers along, uh, you are God's field, God's building. Don't you know that you yourselves, the church, are God's temple and that God lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Um, Revelation is another text here. And then we have a couple of quotes from Ellen White where she talks about the mighty cleaver of truth has taken out a people from the quarry of the world and fitted this people who profess to be God's children for a place in his heavenly temple. We are taken from the quarry of the world. The material must not be a dead substance, but living souls. And these souls must be brought out of the quarry of the world where the hand of God fit, uh, fit them for the temple in heaven. We must be stones fitted for the building. We must be fitted and squared for the building. We must be laborers together with God, for we are God's husbandry. We are God's building. The Old Testament sanctuary is a metaphor for the reality of a, of a building built out of living beings. So I want to say very clearly, I believe in a literal, physical temple in heaven. The question is, what is it built or constructed out of? It's constructed out of living beings, living intelligent beings. And I said this in this last week, and, and after I would say this, the comment came back and said, so you don't believe in a physical temple. Oh, you don't believe in a real temple. Are you not real? Are you not physical? Yes, a real physical temple, not built with human hands. Who built humanity? We didn't. So it's a real physical temple built out of living beings where God wants to dwell. And when you understand this, then put it back in the controversy. Did Lucifer want to sit enthroned in the temple of God if the temple of God was a building made out of inanimate material, empty by himself? No, he wanted to be enthroned into the temple where God dwells, which is the heart and minds of all the living creatures to be the one most loved, adored, and admired. He wanted to dethrone God from his temple. Thus, in Thessalonians, the man of sin comes and opposes, opposes the cross, opposes Christ. That man of perdition will rise up, opposing everything that is uh, from God, and set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This was the Dark Ages, where the man of sin set up in the mind of man a distorted, false, pagan, appeasement God concept. And so the idea of who God is 
has been entrenched in the temple of God so that we worship this being who requires appeasement by the blood of his son and thus 2,300 years till the temple is cleansed. And we live in that time right now where the truth about God is to be cleansing the temple so that Christ will again dwell in his temple. Last comment. We'll close. Is a question about the most holy place in the sanctuary in the desert. It was out of God's love and kindness because he knew that the impurities of the individual who was not fully right with him would be, that the individual would be destroyed by nature of God's perfect presence. That he said, don't come into that most holy place. It wasn't an arbitrary exclusion. It was trying to help protect them. So it was a, an act. Our gracious Father in heaven, we have so much to learn and so much to unlearn. We pray that your spirit of truth will come. Enlighten our minds. Teach us how to be evidence-based thinkers. Uh, connect the, the pieces of the, of the historic evidence together in our minds that we can see the reality of your character. Give us the wisdom to look through the lens of the life of Jesus Christ as we study these things, knowing that if we've seen Christ, we've seen you. May our hearts be drawn in unity of love for you and one another, that we can have the law of love restored into our hearts and minds, and that you can make us effective here in our community and around the world to share this message about you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.